Well, the generation that I was born in is referred to as Xennials. Kind of tucked in between Generation X and the Millennials from the late 1970s, early 80s. There's kind of this micro-generation that we're now being referred to as the Xennials. Now, Xennials, we were born into an analog world. And as we grew up, the world grew to become more digital. What that means for Xennials is that we remember when we first got our first personal computer. We didn't grow up with personal computers in the home, but as we grew, that technology changed. We can tell you when our family home first got an internet connection, the phrase, you've got mail. That's nostalgic for us, right? That was what you were hoping for, that you would have mail, that email would be waiting on you. It was a different way of living back then. Xennials also, we didn't get our first cell phone until we were in our 20s which means that we had landlines. If if we were really special, when we were 13 or 14, maybe our parents got our own landline to our own room with our own number. My parents, they never agreed to that. So I just always had my mom answer the phone, passing off calls to me. We used voicemail back then, which a little bit of a hint. If you're leaving voicemail to anyone under the age of 40, they don't check it. They don't use voicemail anymore. Don't even bother using it, right? Exennials, we know about all those things. We saw those things change. And the growth of technology, it led to a a tremendous shift in the way of of doing things and living life. You see, reminders, they used to be written down by hand. When I was a college student, I would write down my college assignments. I had a little, like, planner that I carried with me in my backpack that had my assignments and when they were due and my meetings and where I needed to be. And then I had something called a desktop calendar. Some of you might remember those. They sat on top of your desk, and you'd write down your assignments and where you needed to be. And the way that I would sync those together is just manually copying both. That's how life was lived back then. Daytimers, post-it notes, all of those were forms of reminders. Now, all of that happens on one device, your phone. Everything happens there. Your post-it notes, they're there in an app called Todoist, right? They tell you what to do. You get buzzed all the time with reminders. Your calendar buzzing you where you need to be. Even getting buzzed if you have a reservation somewhere, what time you need to leave your house because it links into your GPS to tell you what time to leave to arrive at your dinner reservation on time. All of that happens. All of those reminders, they happen through one device. Well, consider how important it is in the Christian life that we have regular reminders. And consider that in the the Christian life, all of these reminders come from one source, from the Bible. And could you consider the Bible that when you open it up, just like your phone buzzes you with regular reminders, that as Christians, the Bible is kind of buzzing us, alerting us to the regular reminders we need of who God is and His character, what He's done, the person and work of Jesus Christ. The regular reminders we need of His promises, the promises of His faithfulness to us, that in Christ He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Could you think about your Bible like that? Think of yourself in need of reminders and your Bible, Christian, as the source of those regular and needed reminders. Well, I wonder where do you go in your Bible for reminders of God's character? Maybe you go and you look for a passage about God's love and grace, which is a wonderful reminder that we need, a reminder in a passage like Lamentations 3. Maybe you turn there to 22 and 33 of Lamentations 3 and reminded that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. What a reminder that we need. Maybe you turn to a psalm for a reminder, like Psalm 145. We're reminded the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What about passages on God's judgment? Well, how often do you turn to be reminded of God's judgment? How often when you're longing for comfort, do you turn and think, I need to read a passage about God's judgment? Maybe it's not the first thing that comes to your mind, but consider, and we want to consider this morning, how we might benefit as Christians from regular reminders of God's justice, justice and His judgment. You see, we can't separate His love and His mercy and His grace. We must not separate that from His justice and His judgment. Well, today, that's what we see in the book of Jude. Jude writes to comfort Christians, and he does that by reminding them of God's past judgment and pointing them to the certainty of God's future judgment at the return of Jesus Christ. We're in our our second week of of Jude. It's just a little mini-sermon series as we're taking a break from our series in Genesis. We plan to be back there, Lord willing, in mid-August and resume to the end of the book of Genesis. But today we're in the book of Jude. So the best way to stay engaged this morning is to open up a copy of the Bible. If you brought your Bible with you, turn to the book of Jude. If you need a Bible this morning, take that pew Bible right in front of you. Turn to page 1027 page 1027. We're going to be in the book of Jude this morning. And if you come this morning and you don't own a Bible, uh, use that Bible this morning and take it home with you as a gift from us to you. And then talk with someone here, one of the members or any of our staff or pastors at the door on the way out. We'd love to talk with you more about connecting you to someone who could read the Bible with you. We're going to be in Jude verses 5 through 16 this morning. Let me give you a little bit of context and background and reminder from last time the urgent purpose that Jude had in writing this letter was to call Christians to contend for the faith delivered once for all to the saints. That's the main purpose of this letter, an urgent purpose that he had. They needed to contend for the faith because there was a presence of false teachers. Some were being led astray by a false gospel. That was a threat. False teaching's always been a threat. It's not a threat from outside the church, rather a threat that comes from inside the walls of the church. And these false teachers, they were denying the lordship of Jesus through immoral living. They were teaching that you could basically live any way that you wanted to live, that you could presume upon God's grace, that God's grace would give you license to sin. And Jude called that a perversion of the grace of God that they needed to be on the alert for. Well, today we'll look in the main body of the letter in verses 5 through 16, where Jude shows the certainty of God's judgment, and therefore that God is going to judge false teaching and teachers. Don't follow them. Don't get too close. Don't cling to those false and empty promises. Cling to Jesus. Cling to His truth and His promises. And let me give you the main point of the sermon before I read through all of this passage. The main point of the sermon, if you're taking notes, remembering the certainty of God's judgment motivates us toward godliness. Remembering the certainty of God's judgment motivates us toward godliness. Let me read Jude verses 5 through 16. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, 
that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. As we make our way through this passage this morning, I want to divide this passage up into three points that take us through what's happening in the passage. The first point in verses 5 through 7, God's past judgment. So we see in verses 5 through 7, God's past judgment. Now, the genre of this book, it's an epistle, which means it's a, it's a letter, but think of it as a written sermon. What Jude's doing here in the main body of the letter, it's a type of written sermon. That's why you see three examples here and three examples here and six metaphors here. He's, he's teaching them from the Old Testament, exposing them to God's Word and applying it to their present situation. That's what a sermon is. It's teaching God's Word and applying it to the, to the listener. So he uses three examples of God's judgment in verses 5 through 7, making a main point here that God's judgment is certain. Remember God's past judgment. Last week in verse 4, we saw that Jude said these false teachers long ago were designated for this condemnation, meaning God's judgment. And verse 5 continues this thought. Look there in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew her. Jude, he wanted to comfort them and instruct them by reminding them and revisiting God's past judgments. They needed to be reminded, and he wanted to help them resist the false teachers 
and their influence. So here in verses 5 through 7, again, it's like a sermon, three examples of God's judgment. We saw last week that Jude liked to write in trios. We saw two trios last week. In verse 1, called, beloved, and kept. In verse 2, the trio of mercy, love, and peace. Here's a third trio in verses 5, 6, and 7. Three examples in which God judged those who departed. Israel in the wilderness, the fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. First example we see there in verse 5. The first example, God judges unbelief. So he's right about verse 5. They're examples of unbelief, and he points to the Exodus story, the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery and saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now notice Jude says Jesus who saved a people. So he's talking about Jesus and an event that happened back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. And you may think, well, Jesus, we don't see him showing up in name at least until the book of Matthew. So why is Jude looking back on the Old Testament and the book of Exodus and saying that Jesus saved these people? Well, the New Testament writers, they often identify Jesus and texts of the Old Testament with God the Father. They're, They're recognizing the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Exodus in the Old Testament is referred to as the great salvation event of the Old Testament. You need to know about that. The Exodus, it's the great salvation event of the Old Testament. So he connects this salvation event of the Old Testament to Jesus. The Exodus was a type of salvation. In other words, Jesus was present there, and he connects Jesus to that work of salvation. Now, some of these same people that were saved in that moment in the Exodus, they were later destroyed in the wilderness. Destroyed means physical death, but also speaks to eternal destruction and judgment. Though Jude points out that those judged were those who did not believe. So he's pointing to apostasy. Those who maybe professed to believe. They were a part of the faith community. They had a profession of faith, but they truly had no real possession of faith. They didn't really inwardly believe, and as time went on, that showed itself because they started to deny God, deny His judgment, deny His promises. They did not persevere in the faith. That's what apostasy is. You don't persevere. You stop believing, and therefore they show they were not of the faith by not remaining in the faith. Jude's most likely referencing Numbers chapter 14 here, when a group of 12 men returned from spying on the promised land of Canaan. Ten spies gave a bad report. They were fearful of the people that were living in the land, and they called God's people, let's just go back to Egypt, which is crazy. Let's go back to the land of slavery. Slavery would be better than living in this land amongst these terrifying people. But there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who gave a good report. And they encouraged God's people, remember His promise, let's go and possess the land. They, they pointed to relying on God's promise. Now, there were so many who had seen with their own eyes God do great things in the work of the Exodus, but they didn't believe. That's why it shows us that seeing is really not enough for believing. There were some who saw God part the Red Sea. He saw the dry land. They walked through it. They, they, they saw God destroy the enemies of God's people, Pharaoh and his armies, crushing them as the Red Sea came crashing down, yet they did not 
believe. They didn't believe God's promise to give them the land of Canaan. And as a result, all those who did not believe, all of those over the age of 20, except for Joshua and Caleb, did not see the promised land, and they died in the wilderness. Well, how is this related to Jude's situation? Well, the false teachers there, they were denying the the lordship of Jesus. They did not submit to Jesus. They had crept into the church unnoticed. They seemed to be of the people there, of, of Jesus. They appeared to be a part of the church community, yet they didn't really believe because they started straying from the true gospel. They strayed from obedience to God. You see, unbelief, Jude wants to be clear, unbelief destroyed God's people in the past, and unbelief will destroy God's people today. The second example Jude gives is in verse 6, God judges pride. So he's covered unbelief, God judges unbelief. Here, God judges pride in verse 6. Now this verse is one of a number of verses in this passage that is difficult to interpret. So Jude points to the example of the fallen angels. We read about angels here who did not stay within their own position of authority, meaning they, they left heaven and left a place of submission and glory to God to rebel against God. Now, we know that, that Satan used to be an angel named Lucifer. We know there was a rebellion in heaven, a prideful rebellion against the authority of God, and Satan, along with a lot of angels, fell from heaven due to pride. Now, whether Jude is referencing the original fall of Satan as imaged in Isaiah chapter 14, or whether he's referencing Genesis chapter 6 and an interpretation of that passage, which he may be referring to. Whichever one it is, what we do see clearly here is that the angels who rejected authority, they rebelled pridefully against the authority of God and abandoned God, that a life apart from God is a life under His judgment. You see, what's being highlighted here is that no one who rejects God's authority escapes God's judgment. All sin will be judged on earth and in the spiritual realm. God is holy. He he will not tolerate sin. He indeed will judge sin. And we read at the end of verse 6, God's judgment that these angels, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Meaning they are being preserved for the final judgment at the end of time that will surely come when Jesus returns to earth. Then a third example in verse 7, God judges sexual immorality. So you're tracking here what he's pointing out, unbelief, pride, sexual immorality. They've always been enemies to God's people. They've always been a part of false teaching. It was a part of the false teaching then. And he points to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. This is taken from Genesis 18 and Genesis 19. We covered this back last year, going through the book of Genesis. So let me give a a brief review, the sinful offense of these cities. We do read here in verse 7, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So by brief review, these cities, just as Jude describes here, were filled with sexual immorality and unnatural desire. And that unnatural desire refers to the homosexual acts that were taking place in the city of Sodom and Gerora and the surrounding cities. Now, the name of the city, Sodom, it provides the base of the word sodomy or or sins outside of normal sexuality. 
Sodom was known for rampant sexual perversion. Homosexual practice was the norm there. And that was going against God's clear and natural design. You see, the Bible is clear in both Old Testament and New Testament that homosexual acts are sinful. And I really don't know where else you're going to hear that besides a church. I don't know where else in society you're going to hear that. And some people hear that and they think that's unloving. That's wrong. Who are you to judge? Well, we're not the ones judging. This is God's Word. It's what He has clearly and plainly said. And we trust His Word is good and right and follows His good design for creation. And as Christians, we not, do not presume to have the authority to edit the Bible. It does not need to be edited. And we do not try to presume authority that we can't do. We receive what God says, and we seek to submit to His Word. You see, throughout the New Testament, the teaching of the apostles is consistent in these same sexual standards, describing homosexual acts as unnatural and dishonorable to God. The Apostle Paul uses the same light language of of what's natural and unnatural in Romans chapter 1, verse 26. He says, "...for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions." For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You see, Jude pointed to Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. They were destroyed by God's judgment through fire that God sent from heaven. And this point very clearly made there in verse 7, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You see, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has always served as an announcement from Genesis 18 and 19 forward, an announcement of what was to come. Look back on that past judgment, and there is a final judgment coming surely one day. God's judgment is certain, and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah tells us The sexually immoral, meaning those who do not repent of sexual sin, those who refuse to repent and seek forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ, will be punished. And what's mentioned here, again, is a punishment of eternal fire. Just as God sent fire from heaven and destroyed the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah, He will do the same in the final judgment with the eternal fire of hell. Hell may not be a popular topic to talk about, but it's a biblical one. It's a topic that Jesus spoke about. In fact, most of the use of the word hell in the New Testament came directly from the lips of the Lord Jesus Himself. Jesus talked about hell. The Bible talks about hell. We would, be, we would do well to consider it and not try to deny its existence. You see, Jesus clearly taught in Matthew 25, which Pastor Jonathan preached a couple weeks ago, that He will come again in glory to judge. He will distinguish between the wicked and the righteous, dividing the, the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. We read in Matthew 25, 46, that Jesus said, and these, the wicked, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is real. It's a real place of conscious, eternal torment. It's a place that we cannot deny the existence of. It's a place that we should not ignore. We'll get to more of this later, but there's fruit in our life and fruit in the lives of others that will come 
if indeed we consider the truth of that moment. You see, you first read through the main body of this letter, and you may have thought, well, called, beloved, and kept, that is encouraging, that is comforting, let's keep that coming. And then you get to the main letter, and you're like, whoa, what's going on here? Wow, a lot of interesting things going on. How is this encouraging? And you may have the question, well, how are you to find comfort and joy from a topic like eternal punishment and God's judgment and hell. You may wonder, how do we find joy in in any of those topics? Well, you have to consider first that the judgment is God's response to sin. God is right in all His judgments. His judgment against sin is necessary. It's a necessary response to those who oppose His sovereign and loving rule. And far too often with sin, we start with our vantage point, like our own starting place is our vantage point, life on earth. Let's be honest, when we start with our vantage point, our first thought is, I'm not that bad. I'm kind of just like everyone else. I make mistakes, lose my temper, I do some things I shouldn't do. I'm just just not that bad. Well, you can't have that starting place. God does not have that vantage place. That vantage point is his starting place, and neither should we. And if you do, you won't understand God's judgment. Start in heaven with God and his holiness. He is perfect. He is just. He is right in all His ways. There is no sin in heaven. There are no tears or sorrow in heaven. There are no hurtful words spoken in heaven. There's no results of sin like disease and death in heaven because God is perfect and right and just in all of His ways. Start back to Genesis 1 and 2. We saw God creating this world perfectly. where We lived in a perfect world without sin. Adam and Eve lived in perfect fellowship with God. They had perfect fellowship with Him vertically and a perfect relationship with one another horizontally. The only perfect marriage that ever existed was theirs in Genesis 1 and 2. And then it got imperfect really quick in Genesis 3 when they rebelled against God and disobeyed Him and they were tempted by Satan and took the fruit and disobeyed God. That wasn't just a moment where they messed up. It wasn't a moment where it was like, oops, we made the wrong decision. That's a mistake. It was a moment of rejecting God's loving authority of turning away from Him, of seeking a life independent from Him. And judgment came from that moment. You see, God's vantage point must be our starting place. He is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous in all of His ways. He created us as people to bear His image, to live in relationship with Him. And all of our sin, therefore, is an offense against Him. Not only separating us from God in a relationship with Him, but placing us under His judgment and wrath for sinning against Him. You see, sin in all of its forms, Jude outlines unbelief, pride, sexual immorality, but sin in all of its forms are an offense, high treason against the Most High God. And God is right to judge us for our sin. But don't miss this. Where can we find joy in God's judgment? You can't separate judgment from salvation. You see, it's through judgment that God saves. The most important judgment that ever happened was Jesus being judged for sinners. The most important judgment that ever happened took place on a hill at Calvary, the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, who lived the life that you and I were supposed to live but didn't, a life of perfect obedience to God, perfectly loving everyone he came into contact with. He also took a death that you and I deserve. He he stood, in fact, on the cross, in our place, condemned he stood. 
condemned, meaning taking judgment in the place of anyone who would turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. You see, Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Christians find joy in judgment because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We find joy that He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead showing that He conquered sin, meaning His resurrection from the dead was proof and evidence that He satisfied God's wrath and judgment through His sacrificial death on the cross. We find joy because we remember God's judgment at the cross. And you too, if you don't know Jesus, you can find joy this morning. If you would change your mind about sin, if you would agree with God and His Word about sin, that your sin is an offense against Him, if you would turn to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the mercy of pardon for your sin. And you won't know the judgment of God's wrath for your sin. What you'll know, all you'll know is grace. All you'll know is being a part of His family, adopted into a family of God, into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it's important if we are to live life forward in wisdom in a way that honors God, that we remember God's judgment and His salvation. The second point I want us to see is in verses 8 through 11, the character of false teachers. That's the second point, verses 8 through 11, the character of false teachers. Jude's sermon continues on. He just gave three examples, and now in verse 8, he connects those examples of God's judgment in the past to their present as he points out the character of these false teachers. Look at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also. Now, he keeps referring to these false teachers as these people. You see that phrase pop up again in verse 10, in verse 12, in verse 14. And verse 16, what he's doing is connecting God's past judgment, unbelief, pride, and morality, saying like, hey, these false teachers are like those people from the Old Testament that God judged. So the unbelief, pride, and sexual immorality mentioned in verse 5 through 7, that's how these people, these false teachers, that's how they live. They're false teachers. They don't live by the content of faith. They don't live by God's Word. Look at verse 8. These people are relying on their dreams. False teachers, they rely on subjective experiences, their dreams. So maybe even what was happening here was something like, well, God told me in a dream. And anytime anyone says something like that, like God told me in a dream, God, God, I feel like God wants me to do this, my antennas start to go up. And then you know, as soon as they say something that directly opposes God's word, that's false teaching. God did not tell you something in a dream different than what he told the apostles and the prophets to record down in Scripture. They rely on, on their dreams here. We see here mentioned in verse 8 that their dreams clearly oppose God's Word because their teaching promoted defiling the flesh, which is sexual immorality. Their teaching rejects authority, the authority of Jesus Christ, and blasphemes the glorious ones. That word blaspheme means to slander or speak evil of. Glorious ones, I think that's referring to angels. So evidently these false teachers slandered the angels, I think that's likely by denying that they would return with the Lord to judge the ungodly. 
False teaching, ironically, one of the very doctrines it tends to deny is God's judgment. False teaching tends to say, well, live how you want to live. Uh, God will forgive you. God's gracious. It presumes upon the grace of God. It doesn't seek to be changed and transformed by God's grace. The character of these false teachers is contrasted to what we see in verse 9 with the archangel Michael. Now, this is another hard verse. It's not a story you'll find in the Old Testament. Michael contending with the devil, disputing about the body of Moses. Jude, he's leaning in on Jewish tradition there. So they obviously were familiar with this story. It was a part of their tradition, and he used this story to illustrate his point. And and while this story, we, we, we don't really know exactly where it's recorded. There's some guesses as to where it may be. We do see the angel Michael mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. So he's real. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 identifies him as the chief angel over Israel. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, and what is yet to happen, Michael is seen fighting against a dragon, which represents Satan. See, even like these two, Michael and Satan, they're pictured in Revelation chapter 12. Now, what Jude references with Michael in verse 9 here is that in Jewish tradition, there was a story of an argument between Satan and the archangel Michael when Moses died. In response, whatever that argument was about, whatever it was over, Michael stood on the authority of the Lord. That's what's being highlighted here. The contrast is that these false teachers, they reject authority, they blaspheme, and contrast Michael, even as an archangel with a lot of power, did not reject the Lord's authority. Jude says he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, meaning he didn't assume his own authority, but rather he said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael relied on the authority of the Lord. Judgment belongs to God. God alone is judge. The contrast, Michael with all of his power and beauty and glory of being an archangel, he submitted to the Lord. And Jude's point, if an archangel of the Lord didn't rebuke the devil, how arrogant is it for these false teachers to do this as they blasphemed the glorious ones. The contrast again in verse 10, but these people, these people blaspheme. They reject God's authority and speak evil because they do not understand the true content of faith. They are like unreasoning animals governed by their instincts and not truth. Think about what that picture is there. Animals have thoughts They think about things. You who have pets, you know that. Your animals have thoughts. You probably get a kick out of seeing their thoughts turn into action sometimes. But animals are animals. They are ruled by their instincts. And that is why having a pet tiger never turns out well in the end. You may nurse that pet tiger from the time it's a tiger cub. You may nurse it with a bottle. It may love you and purr up against you. Eventually, that tiger will eat you. It will. It never turns out well for tiger owners. That's just kind of like the surprise ending that's not really a surprise. Why? Because even those animals have thoughts, they're governed by their instincts, and those instincts will eventually kick in. He's saying, false teachers, they're not governed by truth. They're just governed by sinful instincts. They live whichever way they want to live, denying Jesus as master through their actions. All of this leads Jude to say in verse 11, woe to them. That's a phrase declaring judgment that we see Jesus using in the New Testament. Woe to them, their character condemns them. 
Jude pronounces a judgment on their character. And in verses 11 through 13, three more historic examples. I told you this was a sermon, right? He's like even like a super Baptist. He has three points and then three points and then six points, right? Jude is getting it in. Verse 11 through 13, three more historic examples. Another trio, Cain, Balaam, Korah. Another trio. For they walked in the way of Cain. That's a picture of envy. Comes from Genesis chapter 4. Cain acted out of a heart of envy. And that envy led him to kill his own brother, Abel. He killed his righteous brother. And these false teachers, they walk in the way of Cain. As they kill the righteous with their false teaching. Second, they're like Balaam. That's a picture of greed. Back in Numbers chapter 22 through 24, we read that Balaam was a prophet who was hired by a king who was an enemy of Israel. Balaam was hired by this king for a large sum of money to entice Israel into idolatry and immorality so that a judgment would be pronounced on them. Like Balaam, These false teachers lead God's people astray for personal gain. Third, they're like Korah. That's a picture of pride. Back in Numbers chapter 16, you read the story of Korah. Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, rejecting God's appointed leaders of God's people. He disputed the divine origin of God's law through Moses, and as a result, God judged and destroyed Korah, his family, and all who followed him. Now, this wasn't merely a warning from Jude. There's a warning in these three examples, but he's saying these false teachers, they come in the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah. They are a type of these three, and therefore God will judge them just as he did those three. Consider their character and guard your own. The third point we find in verses 12 through 16, God's future judgment. That's the third point we see here in 12 through 16, God's future judgment. The case has been made, but it's almost like Jude can't help himself. I'm telling you, he's like a super Baptist preacher. Because if there haven't been enough illustrations and warnings, he keeps going in verse 12 and 13 using six metaphors from nature to negatively describe the false teachers and to show their works. Starting in verse 12, I'll go through these quickly. Number one, they are hidden reefs, like rock just below the surface of the sea that will sink a ship. These false teachers, if you get too close, you won't see them until it's too late when the destruction is done. Metaphor two, they are shepherds feeding themselves. They don't care for the sheep. Sheep have to be fed. They rely on shepherds. These shepherds, though, they just feed themselves. They're out for personal gain. Metaphor three, they are waterless clouds swept along by winds. We would love to see some waterless clouds here in Charlotte. We've seen clouds full of water, right? It's kind of like we have drought for two months and then monsoon for like two months. That's how it works here in Charlotte in the summer. But what good are clouds if clouds just came and never brought rain? You see, clouds promise to bring something good. But if they're waterless clouds, and that's all that comes, they simply get in the way of the sun. They bring no rain to feed the earth and produce fruit and vegetation. These teachers are like waterless clouds. They don't nourish or sustain anyone. The fourth metaphor, they are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. 
Dead trees that bear no fruit, they take up valuable soil. They need to be uprooted and disposed of. The presence of those dead trees, it's worthless, and it is detrimental to those around. These false teachers, they bear no good fruit like dead trees. There no spiritual fruit or character is seen there. Their presence is detrimental to all around, and God will indeed judge them and destroy them. The fifth metaphor in verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea. Wild waves, they cause chaos and kick up foam, and they destroy what's ever in their path. They'll knock you over. These teachers make a lot of noise like wild waves, but like wild waves, they leave nothing but filth in their path, washing up debris, and they go back out and leave all the debris they've kicked up laying there on the beach. Number six, they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. A shooting star lights up the sky in a brilliant manner, but it's brief. It seems impressive, a big flash and glow, but quickly fades away and is never seen again, but rather disintegrates into darkness. These false teachers, their their teaching may sound impressive at first. They may wow you with their charisma. They may light up a room and be electric and impressive, but do not get close. Do not cling to their false teaching. Time will expose their character. Time will expose the emptiness of their promises. They may sell you on health and wealth and prosperity, and then 10 years later, what's going on in your life? Every health, wealth, and prosperity preacher dies in the end. Over time, their empty promises are seen by all as they pervert God's grace and deny the lordship of Jesus. And with all of that, the case has been made by Jude, the judgment there in verses 14 through 16, it's a final condemnation. Judgment awaits the ungodly. Four times the word ungodly is used here. Jude's made the case, the false teachers are ungodly and so are all who will follow them. He makes the point about their final judgment in verse 14. He references Enoch prophesying about the Lord coming with an army of of angels. Again, this is not a prophecy that's contained in the pages of the Bible, but one that evidently they were familiar with. The purpose of this prophecy of the Lord coming with an army of angels in verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The result of false teaching, it's ungodliness, a life of ungodliness, of pride, of rejecting authority, of sexual morality. It ends in God's judgment. And verse 16 gives that final list describing ungodliness. These are grumblers and malcontents following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. The point here, God will certainly judge sin. See, again, what's interesting about false teachers is that false teachers tend to deny God's judgment. They promote living for this present world, living for prosperity. They promote all types of sexual immorality, even overlooking that. They don't want to talk about God's judgment in hell because that sounds negative. They want things that tend to tickle the ears more and draw in the listener and tap into your natural human desires and even selfish wants. They deny God will judge you for anything in your life. 
But brothers and sisters, a God who does not judge is a God of your own making. And we call that an idol. Not a living God, not a God who brings life, not a God that will save you from your sins, not a God that will change you, not a God that will transform you, not a God that will give you any hope or assurance, not a God that you will meet in the next life. It's a false God. In the pages of the Bible, we have reminders of the one true God, his character, his work, what he's done through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his promises that are yours if indeed you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jude goes to great lengths to make the point. God's judgment is real, and you and I need to live in light of it. Well, a few thoughts to close on this to help us consider what do we do with all this. First, the point of considering God's judgment isn't that judgment is all we talk about. We've talked about a lot in the last few weeks between me and Jonathan Morgan in Matthew 25 because that's where God's Word has been. That's the topic we've seen there. That's not all that we talk about. It needs to be a part of what we talk about. And we don't want to talk about God's judgment in a way that's cold-hearted. It should humble us to talk about the eternal consequences of sin against God. You see, the point here is considering God's judgment, that He is exalted in His judgment. He is glorified as we consider His holiness and His righteousness and His justice, His power to rule and judge. It is good and right that God judges evil. The point of considering God's judgment is that He would be exalted. Number two, you can't speak of God's judgment without considering His mercy, His kindness, His grace, and sending Jesus to take our judgment upon Himself and dying on the cross to satisfy God's holy wrath and His judgment for sin. We can't speak of God's judgment without thinking about Jesus resurrected from the dead after the third day as proof that Jesus' payment for sin was sufficient to satisfy God's judgment and wrath. You see, talking about God's judgment highlights He's a God of mercy. He will pardon anyone who turns to Him. And He has done that. He has purchased that at great cost, at the cost of His own beloved Son, the Son of God, laying down His life and purchasing with the payment of His own blood your mercy and pardon and forgiveness of sin, if indeed you would turn and trust in Jesus. Well, how are your sins being forgiven? If you're here this morning, how, how are your sins being forgiven? Just trying to live better and trying to make up for bad things you've done is not going to forgive you of your sin. It's not going to deal with your sin problem. Who will evaluate your life on the last day? Not your friends, not your parents, not your coworkers, not yourself, but the God who created you. And you need to be ready for that day. And the only way to be ready today for that day is to put your trust in Jesus. You see the testimony of every member of this church, how are our sins being forgiven? Not by what we've done, but what Christ has already done in paying for our sins, and therefore we are forgiven. Christ became sin for us that we would be forgiven, and our trust is fully the cross of Jesus Christ. Third and finally, as we look to God's judgment, we look forward to that day that will surely come when Jesus will return to earth. If we don't think about God's judgment, we're not going to look forward to the return of Jesus. You see, when Jesus came the first time, he came to be judged, to die for our sin. 
But when he returns a second time, he will come not to be judged, but to judge. That will be a terrible day of judgment for those who have not trusted in Jesus and remain in their sins. For those who put their faith in Jesus, it's the day we long for. It's the day that we hope for. It's the day that we should look more and more forward to when every wrong will be made right. When Satan and sin and death are done away with forever, every wrong made right. If you are discouraged by things that you read online, media headlines, terrible things that have happened in our country in the last few months, it's right to be discouraged. May every one of those evil and ugly moments point us to look forward to the return of King Jesus when every wrong will be made right, when suffering will come to an end forever because Satan and sin and death will be done away with forever. For those who put their faith in Jesus, we long for that day. We find comfort and we find confidence considering the judgment of God. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, He lives. Christ, He lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. And we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Brothers and sisters, the good news is that the next time Jesus comes will be the last time that He comes, and we will be with Him forevermore. May we reflect back on His past judgment, and today know His mercy and look forward to the return of the King Jesus. Let's bow and pray.